Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Johan Ranica. Johan studied philosophy and fell in love with environmental ethics. He got a student job working in vineyards and converted a small vineyard to organic and biodynamic, and things just grew from there. Today, he has 120 hectares under certified Demeter status in Stellenbosch, South Africa, and a winery to go with it. Johan is happily married with two daughters. He loves surfing, martial arts, and riding his mountain bike. When life calms down, he'd like to resume his studies and finish his master's in philosophy. You can find Johan and Reinika Wines at reinikawines.co.za, spelled R-E-Y-N-E-K-E, wines.co.za. Johan, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Will. Looking forward to, to the discussion. So tell us uh, how you found farming. Um, how I found it as how it happened or whether I enjoy it. Uh, both. <laughs> okay. Well, the, lo- the latter is the easier one. The shorter version, I absolutely love it. I mean, what a lifestyle. Uh, I think farming is incredibly creative and rewarding and, and healthy. Um, and a very important job to do these days, both from a people and a planet health point of view. Um, my particular, my personal involvement started many years ago. I started uh, studying law at university, fell in love with philosophy, did a degree, uh, did my honors degree. And um, while I was busy with my master's, uh, the girl I was in love with up and left and got a job as a au pair in Pasadena in Los Angeles. And I could not uh, wait to see her. And I quit my studies, uh, well, temporarily at least. Flew over to the States, spent a year with her. And when I came back, I had an, another six months to, to sort of, you know, uh, do creative things with uh, until I could resume my studies. And I got a job as a as a farm worker or as a farm laborer, grew on me, uh, the outdoorsy work, uh, working with vineyards in particular, I found fascinating. And then I decided to keep on working in the vineyards. Once I resumed my studies, it became my passion, then became my job. Uh, I started to make a bit of wine as well. And in the end, I had to sort of make a call and I opted to continue with the farming and the winemaking. Unfortunately, I put my studies on hold for a bit. I'd like to continue with them one day. Um, but the good news is the lovely girl is now my wife, and um, we still live on the same farm, and we've got two beautiful daughters as well. So lucky me. Yeah, romantic. <laughs> um, it, seriously. Uh, how and when did you find biodynamics and all that? So biodynamics was an interesting thing. Um, Basically what happened is as a farm laborer, I worked on a number of farms in the area. My parents weren't farmers. My dad was lecturing at the university. My mom was a nurse and they lived in a house in the countryside. And I, yeah, I just... uh, you know, didn't want to work with, with chemicals, neither on my parents' property or on some of the neighboring farms where I was working as well. And I just increasingly grew uncomfortable working with them. And in the evenings, I was reading the work of people like Arne Ness and Aldo Leopold. And uh, I think with knowledge comes obligation. You can't read things in the evening and conveniently forget about them in the daytime. 
So I opted to really, you know, try and work with nature and not use all these hazardous chemicals. I convinced my parents to allow me to do so in a quarter of a hectare of pinotage, which is a uniquely South African grape variety. And I, I, to be honest, I failed dismally. I had every pest and plague and bug and disease you can find in South Africa in the vineyard in the, within the, the first six months or first year. And luckily for me, my philosophy lecturer um, told me about a lady called Jeanne Malherbe, and she lived on a farm called Blaublomikis Kloof, which is Afrikaans for Blue Flower Gorge or Valley in a nearby town. And um, I went to see Jeanne, and she first, I can remember the first day she came to my farm, she said to me, my dear, you are organic by neglect. You need to be so by design. And the other thing that I recall she said to me is that your farm is a book. Uh, these weeds are letters in the book and you need to learn to read again. So that was a, a early start of a re-education re of sorts. And um, I continue to learn to this day. As far as biodynamics was concerned, I think she first got me over the basic organic understanding um, of you know, farmers using herbicides and pesticides and fungicides, not because they want to, but because they believe they have to. And if you're not going to use them, you need to have a, a plan B or an alternative, you know, strategy to employ um, in terms of weed and pest and, and fungal disease management. And once I, I grew in my understanding enough to do those, uh, she slowly but surely introduced biodynamics. Um, the first thing that she did was to sort of help me with a shift from being sustainable to self-sufficient and then um, went deeper, slowly but surely, eventually, you know, starting to use the preps, trying to explain to me why they worked. And, um, yeah, I st I'm still learning today, to be honest. Do you make your own preps? We do. Uh, we make some of them. We don't make all of them. Uh, we still buy some of them from the lady who has now taken over uh, the Blablomikis Kluwer farm. Her name is Wendy Lilia. And her son, Ishan, is my current farm manager. So we make like preparation 500, for example, um, but a lot of the compost preps, uh, 502 through 507, we still get from Wendy. And... Um, yeah, we've got a, a small but a good community of biodynamic farmers here in South Africa that work together. How deep do you go into biodynamics? Do you pepper? Do you communicate with elementals? Well, you know, I, I would say I prefer to sort of start at the, at the beginning first, um, if I may take a step back and just sort of explain how we understand our farming, our weeds, our pests, our fungal disease. And, and I think once I've explained that, it, you know, it'll become apparent that things like peppering um, has not really been necessary for us or a requirement. I don't have any objection there to. But I try to take a, you know, a sort of a more practical approach rather than a, a, a very esoteric one. Um, so I don't know if I may. Can I can I sort of start at the Please. at the at the at the, at the beginning? 
okay, so I think the most important lesson, uh, well, that that Jean taught me was that I was I was farming with two things. I always believed I was farming with grapes, but she explained to me that I was farming with grapes in the short term, but I was actually farming with soil in the long term. And you know, it's a it's a funny thing. I think anybody who grows flowers or vegetables or anything like that at home will go and remove the weeds from those patches because you want your flowers and your veggies and your things to grow beautifully. But if you go for a walk in nature or in wilderness in the afternoons, uh, you'll see that you very rarely find bare soil in nature. Um, If anything, it'll be a a man-made road something like that. Generally, in nature, for the soil to flourish, it needs to be either in an interactive relationship with plants or at least covered by organic matter or material. So it, it kind of posed a problem to us initially. What, you know, what were we supposed to do? Were we supposed to remove the weeds for the sake of the vines or were we supposed to leave them for the sake of the soil? And then I, I was introduced to another gentleman um, he was a Dr. Uwe Hoffmann, and he came from Geisenheim University. And he explained to me that um, this, what seems like a paradox, if you look at it, actually becomes a synergy if you just extend the length of your view. And what he said is they discovered that there's a correlation between soil health and plant health, and in particular between soil humus and, and plant resilience. And what he said, um, what they discovered was if you could build your soil humus levels up to about 5%, the resilience of the plants that live there could increase by as much as 300%. And this was particularly relevant to us because here where I'm sitting at the moment, I'm sitting on some of the oldest, poorest vineyard soil you can find anywhere in the world. It's decomposed granite. And to give you an idea... If I went to Europe, for example, and I went into a conventional vineyard and I measured the humus content, it would be about 2 or 3%. Here it's about 0.5%. And um, we've now fortunately managed to build it over about 20 years to about 4.3%. But the way we did that was to work differently with our plants. So the, the first thing that we try and do is to understand that not all weeds are necessarily bad. Some of them, like Italian couch grass, is invasive to us. Um, it's allelopathic, so it gives off toxins through its roots. And um, we have to physically remove it with forks and feed this to the cows. But a lot of the other plants um, are hugely beneficial. We've got wild peas uh, that I used to try and get rid of. Now I understand that they fix nitrogen. Uh, dandelions, for example, are ideal to really break the soil with their tap roots and bring up calcium and a whole host of other benefits. Um, I'm going to talk about them a bit more when we get to, to pests as well. But we essentially try and outgrow bad weeds, if I can call it that, with, with ones that are beneficial to the vineyards. And then we understand that we are farming with both soil and with vines. So in a dry year, we do err on the side of caution. And we will be more vigorous in our weed management because, after all, you know, sustainability is looking after nature and it's looking after people, but it is also looking after the cash flow of the farm. Um, 
Um, but in other years uh, where we have sufficient rain, then it's an opportunity for us to look after our soil to a greater extent and really focus on building that. Uh, the next effect, if you look back over 20 years, as I say, is, is, is a positive one. Um, in terms of pests, and I'm thinking, you know, if you were asking about peppering, um, we've had opportunities where I've definitely considered it. We had a, a, a problem with uh, snails, for example, but I just, I don't know why, it's just a personal choice, um, but I just felt more comfortable with the ideas of going out and buying 200 ducks, bringing them to the vineyards, uh, getting them to eat all the snails, uh, give their fertilizer for free rather than peppering the snails. One of the more challenging uh, pests that we have had is a, a, a disease called leaf roll virus. Um, when you look at this, um, it is a one of the biggest challenges in South African viticulture. Um, it attacks the vines. It's incurable. Uh, once the vines are infected, they cannot produce chlorophyll. They can't photosynthesize as, uh, as they should. You don't ripen the grapes properly. And science tells us that this virus is spread through the saliva of a, a mealybug, which is a type of aphid. And um, not being to allowed to spray them, um, one idea was also to pepper them. But then the dandelions came to the rescue. Uh, we discovered that they actually preferred to live on the roots of the dandelion plants. And if we left the dandelions, they would move out of the vines and live on the roots of the dandelions. So with that also comes the understanding that, you know, there's a whole host of homes, if I can call it that, in amongst the vines. And if you're going to destroy them, all those living insects will live in the vineyards and, and, and cause problems for one there. Um, fungal disease is a little bit different. We try to work with equisetum, with horsetail plants. I also uh, looked, um, I saw in Grasp the Nettle, they wrote about using cassiorina trees, which are also high in, in, in silica. Um, but I'm, I'm, we got lucky with a retired professor from the University of Stellenbosch who explained to us that like ducks eat snails, uh, trichodermia predates on, on mildew, on downy mildew in particular. And this is a much preferred way, uh, I think, in both organic and biodynamic certification. Uh, the use of copper in, in, in combating mildew is, is, is the go-to space. But common sense tells me this is not ideal because um, although it's not so bad for our health, you know, we can wear a copper bracelet or have some copper in our multivitamin supplement, uh, it is a metal. And if I continue to spray this on the soil, uh, it will build up over time and it becomes a self-refuting exercise because it, it starts killing off the life that we're trying to build. So in a way, I think our approach has has sort of allowed us to steer away from peppering. I don't have any huge problem with it, but I prefer uh, lighter, less aggressive approaches to working with, with nature and the spiritual world, if you want to call it that. Um, I think to me the biggest difference between organics and biodynamics, however, has been that it's kind of moved the needle from being 
sustainable to becoming self-sufficient. I recall when I, Jean introduced me to Rudolf Steiner's book, Agriculture, uh, there is a reference to seeing or understanding the farm as an individuality of sorts. And the idea that I got, or the way I understand that, is that if you look at your body as an individual, um, you know, your different bits and pieces work together to keep you going unless there's something wrong with you. And the idea of a farm was also to see it as a holistic or a sort of a self-sufficient whole that could look after itself and not just um, something like modern agriculture or industrialized agriculture that continuously relies on external inputs to keep it going. So uh, we, I'm sorry if I'm getting carried away, but I'm, I'm sort of running with a train of thought and you must stop me if no, please do. Can I can I carry on a bit longer? So absolutely. So what was fascinating to me was this idea that, um, you know, from both a production input point of view and also from a, a waste point of view, biodynamics made perfect sense. Um, one of the things that John explained to me is that if you take a teaspoon of healthy soil, um, there's more life in that teaspoon than there's ever been humans on planet Earth. And if I, where I'm sitting now and I look out over the pasture and the vineyards in the distance, and I'm trying to imagine how many teaspoons I can stick in the soil in front of me, it's almost unimaginable. If I then think of the remainder of the farm and the rest of the country and the world, it's like trying to think of all the sand on the beach or all the stars in the sky. It's, it's impossible. And when you think about it that way and you think of all the living things, not just in the soil, but on top of the soil and in the trees and the sky and the water and everywhere. There's only one animal that, that wastes, and, and that's us. Every morning we have breakfast or when we have lunch or when we have dinner, we consume stuff and we, we chuck stuff away. And even when I was farming organically, uh, Jean pointed out to me that although it was much more sustainable than farming conventionally, I was still producing a lot of waste. For example, every time I made wine, I would have a small mountain of pips and, and stems and skins outside the wine cellar. And um, she said to me, no, if you were an organic farmer in terms of animal husbandry, your cows would be much better off than if they just stood in feedlot and were fed all kinds of funny you know, maize and things like that, high-protein diets which weren't suited to their rumen. Um, but they would still give a lot of waste where they slept every night and nitrogen levels there would become unacceptably high. But the moment you combine them, um, you create a synergy where you feed the waste from the cellar to the cows and you feed the waste from the cows back into the vineyards. And this created a, a farm with very little waste, um, can basically recycle or use one production system's uh, waste to, 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 to feed another system. Um, but it also importantly freed us economically. I can remember my auditors came to me about 10 years downstream after conversion and said, it's actually amazing. Your yields have dropped a little bit, but your farms become quite a lot more profitable. 
And, you know, just to, to give you a practical example, I used to buy, let's say, between 50 and 100,000 rands worth of fertilizer every year to keep the system going. And now we don't buy anything. Um, we just recycle everything. I get to sell 50 or, or 100,000 rands worth of oxen and heifers every year. Um, and yeah, just it's, it's, it's a perfect system, especially if you're in the third world and you've got a, a weak currency like the South African rand and modern agriculture is controlled or owned by two or three big multinationals. It really has an emancipatory effect as well. So I think that to me was the biggest and the easiest uh, bridge to cross when it came to understanding biodynamics and to sort of, you know, just just allow it and to, to approach it with an open mind. Uh, Jean then took me a little bit further downstream and explained to me that, um, you know, another attribute of, at least according to her, of a biodynamic farm is that it had a different understanding of value. So most people, when you talk about value or you consider value, think of, of money, uh, you know, the commercial value of things. But she explained to me that in her understanding of biodynamics, at least, one should just differentiate between commercial value and also the inherent value of things. Uh, easy way to understand that or to explain it is if I look at, at the people who work here at Reinecke Wines, uh, they are paid uh, every day for the job they do. But in fairness, they bring much more than just their work to the office every day. Um, they'll do their work, but they also act as a sort of a community of sorts. And we help each other and we support each other. And there's a lot of things that they contribute to the greater good of the company that they never get rewarded or paid for. And I think what Biodynamics does is it creates a sensitivity for that and an appreciation of that. And this appreciation and sensitivity is not limited to the human realm, but obviously extends itself also to the animal kingdom and to the plant kingdom as well. So cows are not just measured in terms of the beef or the milk they can produce on the farm. Uh, they are, you know, the... They bring fertility. Uh, they, they create their own pasture. Um, they have so many other benefits to the farm that we can never thank them enough for. Uh, also from a personal experience, you know, if I'm stressed out, I think one of the best things any person can do is to just go and hang with a herd of, of cows. They've got an amazingly positive and relaxing effect on a person. So it just created this awareness again of respecting the inherent value of these animals and not just what we could get of, out of them from a commercial point of view. And then if you went to the plant kingdom, it was also to understand that, you know, um, these weeds or plants that grew in the vineyards, for example, were not necessarily just, you know, agents of competition that I had to remove. Uh, they could have many benefits and they could be there for other reasons that I did not yet understand. And I think that example of the of the dandelion was a case in point. So what biodynamics really has done for me to the greatest degrees is to make my farm self-sufficient, to reduce waste, um, 
and also to create a softness and a sensitivity for the people and the place and to sort of try and work with nature in both its physical and spiritual sense and um, to step away from this aggressive behavior which is so commonplace in this modern industrialized version of agriculture. Then, of course, there are the other more esoteric aspects of biodynamics, the use of the preparations and um, the use of the biodynamic calendar. I don't know if I can chat about that or if you want to ask me something else first or can I carry on? No, please go. You're, you're, you're answering questions that I intended to ask anyway, so please go ahead. Okay. Um, so I'll be completely honest with you. The first time... Um, when John introduced me to the preps, uh, we made compost and I didn't find that, you know, strange at all to use certain herbal preparations like chamomile or stinging nettle or dandelion or valerian or oak bark. Um, because I remember when my mom used to make compost, there was a South African lady, Margaret Roberts, and she wrote all these books on, on production of herbs. And she used to say, you know, if you make compost, you must add some comfrey and you must add a bit of this and you must add a bit of that. And I thought, okay, uh, just from a pure sort of, I don't know, scientific point of view, I can get my head around it. But what I did find very strange was when Jean suggested that we make and apply preparation 500. So I'm sure most people who listen to your podcast knows exactly what it is. But for those who don't, it's it's the it's the own manure preparation where the idea is that one takes manure from a cow, uh, you put put this in a horn, um, you as many horns as you can find in the best fertile part of your your farm. You dig a sort of a pit of sorts, uh, pack the horns in there. Uh, we generally do so in, in autumn, uh, leave the horns there in winter, take them out in, in spring. Uh, they're typically timed with, with uh, uh, sort of Christian uh, festivals like Easter and Michaelmas, depending on whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere. And then you have to take out this colloidal substance out of this horn, let's uh, say uh, an average that would give you about a double handful. Then I would take a, a wine barrel, which is roughly about 200 liters of, of, of lukewarm rainwater, and then stir this, create a vortex. Once you've got the vortex going, go in the opposite direction. So you have this moment of chaos, and then you do that and change direction, do this for an hour. And then we had to go and spread this with brushes um, across the the, 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 the the vineyard soil and the pastures, late afternoon, preferably overcast, uh, descending moon, um, moist soil. And, you know, when Jean told me this, I said to her, I, you know, I'm actually rather going to go surfing. Um, I love surfing. And this just sounds like, out there for me and I don't see myself you know my neighbors already think I'm, I'm crazy being this organic farmer if I have to start bearing horns in the soil and stirring stuff and spreading stuff um, it's not going to work and she said my dear I hope the waves are good but do you mind if 
if I do so. And I said, no, please go ahead. And uh, we've got one block of Syrah. And she did a few rows in that block. And I left a few rows as a control. And then I also um, experimented with other things as well. So I knew a lady called Isaku Funatsu at the time who came from Japan. She introduced me to EM or effective microorganisms. And I recall I also bought uh, microbes from a Dutch multinational company and tried that in a few rows. And what happened was astounding. Uh, the control portion remained quite hard, the soil, a bit like walking on you know, in the middle of summer, like you're walking on a, on a paved surface. Um, the areas where I tried the EM and the areas where I tried the, 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 the uh, microbes from the, the Dutch multinational changed a bit, but the biggest change was in the area where, where Jean had put the preparation 500 down. And when I compared the costs, it was laughable. Um, it was like a tenth of what I had paid for uh, buying uh, or would have spent on on, 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 on buying the, the microbes from the multinational. And the soil became almost a dark chocolatey brown. Um, and when I walked on it, it was like I was walking on my bed or on my mattress. It was soft and spongy. I could put my hand in there. The soil had all of a sudden got this beautiful structure, crumbly structure. There were earthworms everywhere. And I was just blown away by it. So I then said, okay, this clearly works. Uh, I, I'm not sure why it works. So on that score, I'll be honest with you, I'm still not 100% sure why it works. I like to keep an open mind. Um, but I'd like to to give a few alternatives. Um, I know if you read Rudolf Steiner, and I'm sure a lot of the, the other biodynamic farmers you have spoken to um, would have really given you the, the proper explanation, as Steiner also gives it in his, in his book, Agriculture. Um, but I'd like to just just for the sake of, of it, just to explore two possible additional explanations as well. Um, one of the things that I, I did experience and was when I, I read Rudolf Steiner and it seemed that he came to a lot of insights uh, when he was meditating and he was a clairvoyant person. Um, but I also recognized a lot of what he, he saw in his meditative states um, in, in works of philosophy, in Eastern philosophy that I've read uh, with my interest in martial arts, in Western philosophy as well, in, in Greek mythology. And I asked myself, you know, perhaps um, some of these things were completely new things that he saw, but perhaps some of these things he'd read about and had just surfaced uh, during his meditative state, as also seems to be able to happen to people. Um, and I then tried to get a... I found uh, agriculture difficult to read and difficult to understand, I'll be honest with you. And I tried to find a softer, easier way for myself uh, to make sense out of it. 
And one of the ways to look at it was, was to, to look at language um, and to look at words like a holy cow and lunatic and mother nature and to understand that these traces were still in our language because our ancestors had a different understanding of reality and of explaining it. And they farmed with a spiritual understanding of farming. Today we live in an era where we have a scientific understanding of farming. And I tried to sort of turn back the clock or turn forward the clock, I suppose one could also say, but just to try and put myself in their shoes and understand why this cow would be seen as, as holy and why... Um, you know, preparation 500 could work. And if I, I live in Africa and I see in, in African culture and if we look at Indian culture, I think cows are much revered and greatly respected in terms of all the farm animals. And just in a purely practical sense, if you would slaughter a cow, you would see she has sort of four stomachs and, you know, all the other farm animals like the pig and the duck and the goose and the sheep would, would only have one. So in that innocent way of, of thinking, um, one could assume that what came out the back of the cow was composted or digested to a finer degree or a further state than that which came out the back of the chicken or the pig or the duck. And then the cows also eat very differently from the other farm animals. You know, the pig and the dog and the cat and the goat and the horse eat like we do. They put stuff in their mouth and they chew it and they swallow it and they forget about it. But the cows are different. They graze all day and tonight they go and lie and they chew the cow, the, the cud a second time. And we, when they do that, they're very relaxed. They breathe deeply and rhythmically. Um, their horns are actually extensions of their sinus cavities. And I could imagine that the old farmers saw this, understood all the grass and all the wonderful things that grew on the farm as divine gifts from above filled with divine energy, and that these holy cows really spent the most time savoring this blessed food, if I can call it that, and that perhaps some of this energy would be captured in their horns over time and um, you know if I looked at this idea of, 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 of burying preparation 500 in, in, in autumn and winter and, and connecting it with Easter and Michaelmas I think in fairness one can actually go further back you can go to pre-Christian times you can look you can look at the ancient Greeks and you can look at the myth around Hades and Persephone and, and Demeter and it's again this idea of, you know, Mother Nature breathing in in autumn and winter when the leaves drop from the trees and um, breathing out in spring when everything grows and in summer when we harvest our vegetables. And if you ask yourself what was she breathing in and out, one could, you know, imagine that it was divine energy that one would be breathing in and out and that the cowhorn was the best way to, to capture this. And then if you, if you stir this wonderful preparation, um, you know, it's, it's, it's again how energy so often manifests itself in nature. It starts with the day that you're born, the way you are born, uh, the crown on your head, the cow pat falling in the perfect spiral, the the budding rose, the pine cone, the rosebud, the waves that I love surfing. So often in nature, 
energy, energy manifests itself in the spiral form. And that is kind of, to me, a softer or a, a easier bridge to cross for people who struggle to really just jump from zero into Steiner's agriculture book. And some people, even this is a bridge too far. And then I will say to them, well, you know, from a scientific point of view, if you're going to analyze car manure, uh, you know, under a microscope and in a laboratory and you compare it to chicken manure and pig manure, you're going to find one of the better balanced manures in terms of macro and micronutrients. Pig manure can be very high in phosphates, chicken manure in, in, in nitrogen and nitrates. Um, cow manure just happens to be a top manure. If, you know, why did people put it in, 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 in the cow horn? Uh, well, I think if they just put it in the soil, they probably never find it again. If they put it in a closed vehicle or vessel of sorts, it would probably be, you know, put forth an anaerobic process and people would multiply the pathogens in the manure rather than the beneficial microbes. Uh, why autumn and winter? Because the summers can be really hot and dry and autumn and winter is probably easier for the, for the microbes to sort of do their thing. And then this stirring of the vortex is, is like people make compost uh, teas these days. They make compost and then they aerate and they bubble them with oxygen because the oxygen increases the, the number and the vitality of the microbes involved. So these are sort of three different takes of, of the same thing, which is correct. I think that that's up to the person. Um, I'll give you a different analogy. I'm sitting here now in my, in my tasting room. It's 20 to 5 in the afternoon you know, in the southern tip of Africa. It's the middle of winter. It's going to get dark soon. The lights are on. And this light is basically shining down onto my face. And I don't know how this works, but a clever person, scientist, made an assumption that this light moves in, in waves and um, could build an experiment to prove to kids over and over again that light moves in waves. And a different scientist at a later stage made a different assumption that light moves in particles and could then build experiments and prove to kids that light moves in particles. And then the understanding came that it was particles moving in waves. And I think what this does is it shows us that both were were true in their understanding, but neither were absolute in their understanding. And, and I think this is the nature of knowledge, whether it's scientific knowledge or biodynamic knowledge. I think, you know, uh, things can be true and they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. And I think people should find ways that they are comfortable with. And we are different. And those who are more esoterically inclined are, you know, better suited to, to go down that path. And those who are more scientifically inclined are better suited to go down that path. I don't think they should necessarily be at odds with each other. I think binary thinking is not necessarily helpful always. Um, but what I do know is that the preparation 500 definitely seems to work. And my honest experience, and I struggle to put this in scientific terms, is that there's a feeling on a biodynamic farm that one gets that I very much struggle to explain scientifically. 
And I get the same. I was traveling in, in the UK uh, two weeks ago. And I did a lot of wine tastings and presentations. And my experience of consuming biodynamic wine is also different. I, f- I find it, there's a vitality or an energy in it that I find uplifting. And um, I don't find the same with conventional wines. I'll be honest with you. I get the, the effect thereof, but sometimes they make me tired or make me sleepy. And biodynamics works why exactly? I do not know, man. I wish I could give you a, a clearer, better, more concise explanation. But I struggle with these things, I'll be honest with you. Um, it's okay. It's okay. The, uh, it's, it, it's nice to have uh, some great mystery and to, <laughs> to not know everything, right? And Absolutely. I, I just like to... Sorry, well, yeah, I got carried away. Not at all. Sorry, man. I know, like I said, you were, you were answering questions I intended to ask, and it was a, it was a great uh, narrative. Um, and one of the questions I wanted to ask, uh, and I was thinking when you were talking about um, uh, light and waves uh, and, and particles, a, a book called uh, The Rainbow and the Worm by Mei Wan Ho. It's, it's a very interesting book that kind of combines um, the science and the, the spirituality and the physics and uh, liquid crystalline life form. Mm. I, I did want to ask you, you know, you sound very well read. Are there any books you'd recommend? Um, sure. <laughs> Many. <laughs> um, I love Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, mm-hmm. That really opened my mind um, to thinking, um, to understand the critical space between being dogmatic about stuff and and being relativistic or nihilistic about things and that neither is really an option and that we live with a perspective. Uh, I found that really helpful. Um, For those who love nature, I would definitely read Arnie Ness uh, or Aldo Leopold's uh, Sand County Almanac was definitely also one of my favorites. Um, But I haven't read the book that you've just mentioned. And if you don't mind... I'm going to ask you to repeat it because I'd love to just quickly jot it down so I can make a plan to get hold of it. No, thank you. I absolutely recommend it. It's The Rainbow and the Worm Yeah, by Mei Wan Ho. I'm going to read that for sure. Thank you so much. I'm really Pleasure. looking forward to that. Just the last thing. Um, I don't know how we for time. Uh, just the, the th- Wide open. Okay, so I was just... You know, I I see sort of biodynamics as a four-legged table. Uh, The one would be this concept of self-sufficiency. The second one would be this idea of, I don't know, inherent value as opposed to just seeing the commercial value in things. The third would be the use and the usefulness of the biodynamic preps for whatever reason makes sense to one. And the the fourth and the last one is this idea of the biodynamic calendar. And that is also something that I don't understand, but I find very interesting. Um, but I just think for, for the sake of completion, we must touch on it. Um, I know it's not part of the Demeter certification standards and that it was this lady, Maria Thun, who 
sort of came with the idea of a root and a flower and a, and a leaf and a fruit day. Um, she worked on government or state farms in, in, in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in the 1950s. And when she harvested her uh, onions, for example, she saw that if she harvested them, sometimes the shelf life was much increased and at other times uh, less so. The same for carrots or lettuce. And um, then I think, you know, this idea that Steiner opens our minds to is that it's not just things within the atmosphere of the earth that have an influence on us or on plants or on animals. Um, I think the easiest bridge for people who are skeptic about this is to just think of the sun and photosynthesis. And then you can go a little bit further and, and, and think of the moon and the effect it has on the tides and try and imagine the possible effect it can have on sap flow in plants and stuff like that. Um, but that is an interesting thing. And the idea is that, you know, if you're going to be working with, with carrots, it's better to, to plant them and to harvest them on a root day and, and lettuce would be on a leaf day and I suppose grapes would be on a fruit day. It's not always practical to, to do the pruning and the harvesting on those days because sometimes there's too much to harvest and these kind of things. But we have found them to be beneficial. And um, for the skeptics out there, I just want to say we had a I came across two interesting studies recently. Um, the one was this idea of a lunatic. Um, you often hear that some people struggle to sleep well during full moon. And then the counter argument is, but, you know, is it causation or correlation? In other words, is it not just perhaps because it's lighter outside and this is what keeps people awake? Um, but this seems not to be the case. I came across a study that they did in Switzerland at the Sleep Institute. No windows, no idea of people, what they were testing, uh, no ability for people to see the light or not see the, you know, the darkness or the lack thereof outside. And um, the study showed that there was a, a definite uh, correlation between our sleeping patterns and moon cycles. Uh, the other thing that I found very interesting was that um, we had a big problem with, with shark attacks here where I live and where I surf in False Bay. And we were also trying to understand them better um, because it used to be the, the great white capital of the world before the orcas uh, came into the bay and, and chased all the great whites out. But, you know, we were trying to, to stay safe and we looked at different variables. Um, some of them would be water temperature, uh, looking at, at, at the availability of seal pups or yellowtail fish close to shore. But one of the biggest variables that stood out that no one actually expected was a correlation between shark behavior and uh, moon cycles also. And if I recall correctly, in particular between shark attacks and, and, and times of new moon. So I, I just want to perhaps leave people with, with an inquiring mind. Um, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast and you are skeptical about biodynamics, um, give it a go. Uh, really try it. I think it's beautiful. I find it incredibly helpful on our farm. Um, I cannot begin to explain to you how the life has come back to our farm. Um, 
scientifically measurable things like microbial activity in the soil, uh, increased by, in some instances, as much as 900%, uh, diversity of microbes, uh, bird life, um, little buck coming back, um, and then all the way through to the weird stuff where you could physically feel it, feel the presence uh, when you walked over the hill onto the farm, a calmness, um, something magical about it. Um, anyway, that's just me. I hope it ha helps. And um, I want to encourage people to give it a go. And if you need to, you know, go slowly, uh, do it in your own way, um, and feel free to, to reach out and contact and brainstorm or, or come and visit us anytime. So uh, tell us. It sounds like your your um, your operation is is fairly eclectic. Uh, can you tell us about some of the other alternative agricultural practices you might employ, and if there are any that are maybe um, particularly successful or, or you consider uniquely innovative? Any of the alternative practices? Well, yes. Uh, I think I'm, I know that you're familiar with Alan Savory's work as well. And I think that has been hugely beneficial to us. So what we, as I mentioned right at the beginning of our interview, I think our biggest challenge is to build soil humus. Um, I think for ourselves, because it, you know, it, it, it increases the resilience of the plants that live here. It reduces water runoff, it reduces erosion. Um, it just makes it so much easier and more possible to farm organically and biodynamically. But also, I think, um, well, I don't think, but I, I, I believe that conventional agriculture is one of the big five contributors to global warming and greenhouse gases. And by the same logic, it can also be one of the most effective levers we can employ to help slow it down or even reverse the process. So we've been giving a lot of thinking on sequestrating carbon on the farm and um, building humus, which often is, well, it's very similar. And I'll just give you a few ideas. So in terms of, of carbon sequestration, uh, we just pruned our beautiful lane of oak trees and that gave us a whole host of, of branches and tree stumps. Um, and what we do is we chip the little branches and we compost them, but we use a technology called biocharring for the larger stumps. And what you essentially do is you burn them in a very low oxygen environment and convert them, change them back into charcoal. So the idea is instead of releasing a whole bunch of CO2 or additional CO2 in, into the atmosphere when you make a fire, you can then rather create charcoal and you can physically calculate how much charcoal you then uh, sequestrate on behalf of everyone else on the planet. So you can physically take these uh, bits and pieces of charcoal and build that into a, a wall, for example, and measure that. What we prefer to do is we infuse them with our own cow slurries and, and urine and, and manure and then spread them through the vineyards. This way we put... Uh, carbon back in the soil, but we also have a slow release food for our our vines going forward. Uh, different technology that we do, um, speaking about Alan Savory, he looked at how wild animals cooperate in the ecological system in Africa. 
And one should v- visualize, uh, let's say, if you go to the Serengeti or you go to the Kruger National Park, you have these herds of herbivores, and they are generally sort of bunched together by predators. If you had one wildebeest or zebra or whatever that would stray on its own and go and graze, the chances are quite big that it would be caught by a lion or a pack of wild dogs. So the herbivores are bunched, and what they then do is they eat indiscriminately, not only the nice little bits and pieces, but they eat just about everything. And what is very interesting is if you grow grains and things on a commercial scale in a in a modern agriculture, you can have quite a high stand of oats or rye or triticale with a relatively shallow root system. But in a natural environment, or if I want to say even in an organic and a biodynamic environment, um, what you see above the ground, you also see below the ground. So if you in the Serengeti and you have a large stand of grass, um, you probably have quite a deep root system to look after it as well. So when these herbivores are bunched, they eat everything down, they trample the rest of the organic matter into the ground, they defecate and urinate upon it, and in the manure comes the microbes, and under the soil is all this dead organic matter from the root systems, from the grasses that have been grazed down and trampled down, and the microbes can then move into the soil, and literally convert this mass of organic material into humus. And this in turn ensures and increases the carrying capacity of that land over time. So it seems to be how nature works in Africa. I'm pretty sure it's how nature works in the rest of the world as well. And we just wanted to employ that on our farm. We could not bring lions and packs of wild dogs and wildebeest and zebra onto our vineyards. But what we do to mimic it is we use an old tractor battery, a little electrical wire, and then we have indigenous Nguni cattle. And we bunch them and we do high-density grazing with them for six months of the year in our vineyards when the vines are dormant in the winter months. We start on one end of the farm and we graze them through the vineyards. And what's interesting to note is that the first time we did it, we could take them through about two to three times in the winter months. Now the the soil has been built to such an extent that we can put them through five times uh, in the winter already. So these are just different technologies that don't necessarily fall within the realm of traditional biodynamics um, that also seems to to help us on our on-farm Yeah. Uh, processes and, and methodology that we employ. Excellent. Um, in on your website, I was uh, reading some of the news articles, and the term witchcraft uh, is brought up any number of times. Can you speak to how biodynamics fits into the kind of larger African story, and if there are perhaps any uh, African traditions around uh, the the calendaring, you know, the astro conditions, or maybe even something like uh, preps. Okay, so where it actually comes from is, to be honest, in in the wine world, uh, biodynamic farming has been referred to as the voodoo of viticulture. Um, And it got a bit of a a bad name, and it is because people, as I've tried to explain, I think struggle in this scientific age that we live in to get their head around some of the spiritual insights and, and methodologies and practices of biodynamics. 
especially if you talk about things like peppering and stuff like that. Um, it's seen as a voodoo viticulture or there's some form of witchcraft involved. Now, I don't think this is true at all. And I think our discussion on organics and biodynamics as far should clarify how we understand it, how we employ it, and that we don't uh, do it in a, you know, witchcraft as a sort of a, a potentially negative connotation about it. What I do know is that when we do make the preps and we do uh, discuss biodynamics, it is interesting to see that African people seem to have a lot less trouble getting their heads around it than their Western counterparts. And I think it is because they still live uh, in a more, or they're more comfortable with this idea of a, a spiritual world in which we operate, in which we live. And in their world, uh, their ancestors, for example, play a, a huge and a practical role. I'll, I'll give you an example. So one of our, our, our farmers in the Western Cape and one of the ladies who work with us um, has to travel almost a thousand kilometers around Easter to the Eastern Cape to visit her family and her kinsmen every year. And every time before she does so, uh, she goes to bed and she puts uh, two chairs out uh, next to her bed, one for her deceased mom and one for her deceased dad. And she asks them before she goes to sleep to guide her and to tell her if it's okay to take this journey to her homeland, as she calls it. Because these people drive in taxis, Easter the road is very busy, uh, the accident rate is very high. Um, but this to her is not a strange thing to do. It's a common occurrence. And, you know, I think 90% of the South African population are not necessarily people from Europe or the West. They are people from Africa. So in this context, biodynamics is, yeah, they just don't have this sort of resistance to bridge the gap between the scientific and the spiritual world that we seem to have in our culture. Um, in terms of the preparations, uh, we often think of that. You know, if you look at this idea of putting um, preparation 500 in a cow horn, as advocated by, by Steiner, one has to ask yourself, you know, why not put it in, for example, a kudu horn? A uh, kudu horn has these spirals, almost like a flow form of a vortex. Um, they are from, from, from here. Um, but they're different. Uh, if you're looking at, for example, our, our stinging nettle, I think the ones that we traditionally use come from Europe. It's the perennial version of the plant. Um, but we have our own indigenous stinging nettle here in South Africa, but it's an, an annual version thereof. So uh, very little has been done in this regard. And I think there's definitely room for exploration to try and find our indigenous plants and their animal counterparts uh, that would make sense from a African spiritual and cultural and natural perspective. I'm not aware of uh, any significant work that has been done in this regard, though, but I know it has been discussed. And hopefully, if you do come across anyone who has gone down this route, I, I would appreciate it. And perhaps one of your listeners have come across this. It would be wonderful to 
to find out more or to explore this further. Yep. Mutual. Uh, tell us about the vineyard. Uh, we've talked all this time. I, I still, I'd love to hear about the the vines, uh, the winemaking, all, all that. Okay. So uh, our farm is situated on a hill. It's a granite outcrop. Um, it's beautiful. If you, if you stand on the hill um, and you look down to your left, you see the old historic town of Stellenbosch. If you look to your right, you see the ocean, False Bay, with um, Cape Point in the distance. And if you look sort of over your shoulder to the back, you're going to see Table Mountain and, and, and Cape Town in the distance. It's beautifully situated. It's in Stellenbosch proper. So if you would fly into South Africa, um, the airport is halfway between Cape Town and Stellenbosch. Stellenbosch is also one of the oldest uh, wine-producing regions and people have actually been making wine here for 300 years already, uh, which I think is significant. A lot of people associate Africa with safari, and um, rightly so, but there's also some bespoke wining and dining to be done in the greater, uh, yeah, in the country, but wine, wine production would definitely be in the Western Cape predominantly, with a little bit happening now in the Southern Cape as well. Uh, tell us, uh, what is the Cornerstone project and how does it compare with the, what is it, the PAPSAC or DOP system that's historically been practiced in South Africa? Okay, so so we, we generally focus on four cultivars. We focus on Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, Shiraz and Cab. And Cabernet in particular is a not an easy variety to prune. The, the canes are quite hard. And what happened to me is as a student, I was working in the vineyards, pruning Cabernet uh, in the middle of winter. And I was so cold that I um, I went and I, I put my wetsuit on. And I put my little laborer's clothes over my wetsuit and I went back to the vineyards. And for a moment, I thought it was funny. And I looked at my colleagues and I saw what they had done is they had gone and they had grabbed newspapers and shoved them down their pants, wrapped newspaper around their feet and put it under their, their shirts to try and keep warm. And this was not nice. Uh, I don't, you know, wine is such a wonderful product. It brings joy to so many people. It's enjoyed in such fine establishments, but beauty cannot come from ugly. And the workers are more than anyone else responsible for the quality of fruit that is used in making fine wine. And I think it's absolutely crucial that people must know that and they must respect that and they must look after the workers, whether they are South African or migrant workers anywhere else in the world. So at the time, um, we were literally being paid a weekly wage for working in the vineyards, we were struggling financially. South Africa has an incredibly high unemployment rate, about 30-odd percent. And um, it was very hard to go and ask for salary increases in such an environment. And then one day I had the idea that the only way out of this was, would be if we could add value and make our own wine. And at the time, we only had two cows. They were both jerseys. I had them in a little uh, cow shed. I moved them out um, and bought an old broom 
uh, or New Broom actually, cut the bristles off, second-hand wine barrel, made a little bit of that Cabernet in there, and it was, yeah, uh, okay. I thought it was fantastic, but in hindsight, it was probably not that great. And I then spoke to my colleagues. We had an idea. We invited the man from the bank to come and lend us a couple of million rands so that we could start our own wine business. He was obviously taken aback because I had a a degree in philosophy, um, no formal education in viticulture, commerce, or, you know, our knowledge or anything relevant to what we were going to embark upon. And most of my colleagues were either poorly educated or even illiterate because in old apartheid South Africa, um, many of them had to leave uh, school at a young age to work and to help their parents to put food on the table. So I remember that he, he said to me, you know, rich people enter this industry and they lose a fortune. Um, and I think we were sort of poor already and he really did not think we were going to be successful. Um, I was quite rebellious and I was brought up. My parents told me I could, you know, if I put my mind to it, I could do anything I wanted to. It might be difficult, but anything was possible. And when he kind of thought that we weren't going to do it, it just kind of made me want to try even harder to prove him wrong. But my colleagues declined. And I could understand that. They didn't have money for a mobile phone or even a a bicycle. And now they had to borrow a couple of million rands to start a wine business. And this person from the bank told them it was not going to work. So they declined and that sucked because even though, you know, I just, people need a dream and it was just not a fair and a sustainable situation. So I, fortunately I was, still studying at the time and I was looking at the relationship between environment and development and trying to find a sort of a synergy of sorts. And when I read uh, on development ethics, one of the people, philosophers I came across was a gentleman called Amartya Sen. And at the time he held the PPE chair, Politics, Philosophy and Economics at Oxford. And one of the things that he said is, if you really want to empower people, it's not about... GNP per capita, it's not about their basic needs, it's about the capability to choose. If you want to empower a person, give them choice. If you want to disempower them, remove their capability to choose for themselves. And this had such a basic, profound truth to it that I just latched onto it. And when we were pruning the vineyards again, the following day, I just said to my colleagues, you know, I completely get that this is a bridge too far, but you must have a dream, you know, and, and, and what is your dream? And if you could choose anything, what would you choose? And they chose housing and they chose education for their kids. Um, housing was interesting because we all lived in laborers' cottages in the vineyards, but in order to live there, you had to work there. And whereas it was a, a novelty to me, It was a generational thing for them, like their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. In order to live there, they had to work there. So by that time, Nelson Mandela uh, had been uh, freed. The ANC was disbanded. 
South Africa was a proper dem democracy. Apartheid was finally abolished and thrown out the window or into the dustbin or whatever the most appropriate metaphor would be. And um, these people were politically free, but they were economically still enslaved and structurally enslaved to the farm. So to allow them to live you know, in their own houses and to choose or for their kids to choose whether they wanted to also be farm laborers or perhaps a teacher or medical doctor or a policeman or whatever. Um, that was the idea. So in addition to borrowing money to start the wine company, I found an estate agent. His name was Desmond and asked him um, to go around with a staff and identify suitable housing um, because they all wanted to live in different areas where their friends or their family or someone they knew lived. They didn't want to be stigmatized as a bunch of farm people who lived together in, in the same area. And when we eventually got the houses, um, yeah, we were in for a penny and in for a pound. So I think from all of this, you can gather that I did not study economics and uh, I really got into very deep financial trouble um, and uh, two years down the line, I actually switched banks to borrow more money to pay the first bank. And then I got to a stage where my back was against the wall. Um, the, my colleagues were going to lose their houses. I was going to be declared insolvent. I wouldn't be able to borrow money. Nobody would employ a philosopher. And my dear parents would put their house up for surety, would probably lose that as well. And I just could not quite understand how I had got us there. Uh, again, I got lucky. Um, as with um, Jean, who came and, and helped me and explained to me the difference between being organic by neglect and by design and finally introduced me to biodynamics. This was a lady, her name is Barbara Bester, and um, she knew my mother-in-law and she knew what we were doing. And she also worked for CNN for the broadcasting company at the time. And she was looking for wine for a event, the Africa Journalist of the Year event in Johannesburg that year. And she came to the farm and I think she did a number of farms that she visited and she tasted through the range and then she saw the one wine and was not a, a cultivar wine. It had a name, and the name was Cornerstone. Uh, in the U.S., we can't call it Cornerstone because of your Cornerstone winery in California. Uh, we call it Capstone. Um, but she basically flew me up to Johannesburg. I got to hand over the prizes to the winning journalists of the, of the event. Uh, Cornerstone was bored. At the event, CNN broadcast this, which was a game changer for us as a brand. And I think the best possible thing happened the next morning. Uh, I got up. We had a wonderful buffet. We could eat as much as we wanted to, and I did exactly that. And then they said, yes, someone to meet you. And the person was definitely not there to meet me. The person was there to meet all the VIP people of CNN. But that person was none other than Nelson Mandela or... Madiba, as we like to call him. He was next level, exceptional person. You could literally feel his presence when he entered the room. And I just stood there when it was my turn. Um, I 
didn't get a word out. He just asked me what my name was and what I did, you know, just to sort of try and get my brain going. It took me a few minutes to remember my name and what I did. And when I, I blurted it out that I was Johan and I was a farmer, I immediately regretted it because, you know, from an apartheid perspective, I was white and a farmer and Afrikaans. So I was like the worst of the worst of the worst. And this guy had just been in jail for all these years. But he was so kind and magnanimous. I don't even know what the word is. He just started speaking to me in Afrikaans and asked me how farming was going. And he was, we need more people like him in, in the world, especially now. And it was definitely one of the highlights of my life. Um, if this was a Hollywood story, it would have ended there, but it's not. It's a South African version thereof. So it unfortunately doesn't have a perfect ending. Uh, half of my colleagues uh, eventually sold their houses, uh, thought they would never have to work again because they could earn hundreds of thousands of rands through the sale of their properties, which was obviously not the right thing to do. This was despite education from the bank and courses on on the importance of not doing so, but it was their properties and the title deeds were in their names and it was their choices. Um, but fortunately, the other half didn't and retained their properties. And one of the guys that I used to work with was completely illiterate and had to make a cross when he signed his contract, uh, had a beautiful little girl, and that little girl grew up, studied, got a tertiary education, and she now runs Reineke Office and Tasting Room. So to me, this is significant on so many levels. I think South Africa is a microcosm of the world. We've got a first and a third world in one country. There's no border control to protect us from each other. You can literally work, walk 10 minutes and be either in a first world or in a third world environment. Um, we face the challenges that people face on a global scale, on our own national scale, on a daily basis. We can't ignore them. Um, we can't protect ourselves from them. We have to look for solutions. We have to look for ways to to work together and to make it better for for everyone. And I think it also ties in beautifully with, with biodynamics and this idea of respecting the inherent value of things, uh, that workers are not just there to do a job, but they are also people and they need to live lives of integrity and we must do our best to ensure that that is possible. And and also I'm reminded of uh, one of the principles in the agricultural course that that um, agriculture is the foundation of civilization and the and the best way to reshape civilization is through agriculture. So absolutely, uh, bravo, perfectly put. Thank you, thank you, Johan. Well, I'm thanking you so much. I see we are unfortunately going to have load shedding <laughs> in three minutes' time. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, thank you. I'm gonna stop the recording now.